This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 25th of September 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, Monocle 24's political expert, Vincent McAvinney, will be here to unpack the weekend's news stories. What have you seen, Vinny? Well, we're going to be talking about an absolutely screeching Brexit U-turn over European lorries. We're going to be talking about all that went on this week at the United Nations General Assembly and Angela Merkel's final few days in power as well with that German election. Absolutely. Well, let's carry on, actually, and look more at Germany because the media mogul Gabor Steingart will be telling us how he's taking the mood of the country ahead of tomorrow's federal election. We have built this media ship because we, we don't find any space in, in the inner circle of Berlin. So it was much cheaper to build a new ship. And a bit later on, we'll play you a few of the highlights from Monocle's Quality of Life conference in Athens. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Leaders of the United States, Japan, India and Australia vowed on Friday to pursue a free and open Indo-Pacific region undaunted by coercion at their first in-person summit, which presented a united front amid shared concerns about China. The two-hour meeting of the Quad, as the grouping of four major democracies is called, will be watched closely in Beijing, which criticised the group as doomed to fail. Icelanders vote today in an election that could have a messy outcome with a record nine parties likely to enter Parliament, making it difficult to find common ground on topics like climate change and health care. The North Atlantic island of 371,000 citizens has seen a period of stability since 2017 under the ruling left-right coalition after years of political scandals and distrust of politicians following the 2008 financial crisis. And hundreds of striking air workers blocked the highway to Rome's main airport on Friday as they called on the government to avoid job losses in the transition between Alitalia and a new carrier. The protesters sat down in the middle of the road linking the airport to the capital as police with shields looked on. The strike action forced Alitalia and other airlines to cancel more than 130 flights. I'm Georgina Godwin and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's start the programme in New York, where the United Nations General Assembly has been going on. And I'm joined by our political expert, Vincent McAvinney, who's been completely across that. Uh, Vinny, welcome. Thank you for coming in. Uh, It's always fun to uh, hang out with you on a Saturday morning. Good start to the weekend. (laughs) Um, Let's look at what's been going on in New York. Yeah, so the UN General Assembly has been taking place. uh, And it's been interesting because I think there's a couple, uh, what I'll kind of lump into kind of two main threads, which is, um, let's call it the Entente cordial, so the kind of ongoing fallout from AUKUS and China. Uh, And then really, uh, for me, this was a really green unger. Those are the big headlines that came out for it. So talking about that first, I think we've got COP26, the big climate change conference around the corner of the first uh, few weeks of November here in the UK, up in Glasgow. And I think 
you know, a, a positive shift after the pandemic showing us how we can make quite radical change quite quickly when we have to, is that it does feel like something has now shifted really when it comes to climate change and combating the problem. And I think the big announcement uh, from Xi Jinping, the, the Chinese leader, that uh, they would scrap their policy of building coal-fired power stations abroad, still doing them at home, it seems, because China is very dependent on coal-fired power. But doing it abroad was, was a big step in, in anticipation of that meeting. We still don't have confirmation uh, that Xi Jinping will actually attend. And there was some lobbying uh, from Boris Johnson to try and get him to, to come. Uh, and then we had the Americans as well pledging uh, more money to get into the fund, which they had pledged almost a decade ago, but taking it up to that, I think, about $100 billion now to help a developing nations shift their economies as well. But, it, you know, Boris Johnson's speech, uh, as kind of unwieldy as it was at times, going from ancient Greek uh, philosophy and, and figures to Kermit the Frog, who Boris Johnson said was wrong when he sang It's Not Easy Being Green. Um, you know, it was very interesting for, for a, a world platform speech where you normally maybe cut cover a couple of issues it was entirely on the green agenda it was entirely on climate change as a precursor to cop because there has been some worries here in the uk that preparations weren't going well uh that you know at some point during the pandemic of course that it could have just been a virtual conference and so it would have been kind of less groundbreaking less of the kind of sideshow meetings that uh, were things really get done um but it seems that there has been a bit of a change internationally especially with so many extreme weather events happening in the last year or so you know, parts of the US spent the summer either underwater or on fire. So it feels like there was a lot of movement at the UNGA on that green agenda. Absolutely. And some papers are questioning where and when Boris Johnson developed his uh, climate change conscience. Yeah, and, and we'll come to the kind of orca stuff in a minute, but the uh, climate change stuff is really interesting because a clip has resurfaced from Boris Johnson this week from eight years ago when he was the mayor of London. And the mayor of London has to go in front of... Um, uh, this committee of the kind of representatives uh, in the in the assembly um, quite regularly, actually. Uh, I think it's about once a month or so. But this clip went viral of uh, Boris Johnson being challenged by uh, a, a Green politician who was on that assembly about his uh, thoughts on climate change uh, and his, at the time, basically kind of effective denial, still saying, oh, you know, it was he, he gave that line that gets trotted out a lot by people who are climate change nihilists of being like, oh, it used to be called global warming, but they don't call it that anymore. And that means the whole thing is nonsense. It's like, mm. well, no, it's, it's climate change that, you know, the global causes climate change. It's, you know, it's basic science, really. <laughs> but he was still kind of muttering and stuff. But she pinpointed that the scientist that he was basing his uh, position on was none other than Piers Corbyn. Now, you might be familiar with that surname, Corbyn. His brother, Jeremy, was the uh, Labour leader for a couple of years here. But Piers Corbyn is on a whole other spectrum. Um, he is uh, now most known for being a rabid a COVID denialist, uh, an anti-vaxxer. He was detained recently, I think, by the police for ripping off signage. He's on all these protests. He got caught out by some investigative journalists offering him money to, uh, in a sort of setup to not uh, attack one of the vaccines on offer and he took the money and said he wouldn't do that and so is a bit of a charlatan figure but his actual career before all this before he found a bit of a platform uh, with his brother's success in recent years or public attention he was uh, a meteorologist um, who was famous for doing his weather reports based on uh, solar cycles um, and you know was kind of had predicted basically in the early 90s one heat wave and kind of lived off that forever and I asked a 
weather woman once, um, the ITV weather woman, Lucy Verisami, you know, where is he in, in meteorology as a kind of scientific expert? And she said, well, he's pretty much the Jeremy Corbyn of meteorologists. He's pretty out there on his own. Um, and so, you know, that was the... And, and what was interesting about this clip was that all of the guff that Piers Corbyn had written about climate change because he's a denialist as well um, was published and non-peer reviewed um, and so that was the thing that, that then Boris Johnson was just had just picked this uh, nonsense science that wasn't peer reviewed to base his opposition to climate change on but there has been a conversion you do wonder you know well two things one uh, you know his now wife Kerry uh, Johnson is, is very much on the kind of uh, eco-conservatism climate change agenda and we know that such, she has shifted a lot of his positions. Um, But also, you know, when you are prime minister, you do get, you know, the top level of briefings. And, you know, globally, intelligence services around the world are very worried about climate change, because they know it will create, as we've seen, you know, wars, this conflict in Syria started with a a grain failure that led a lack of bread. And that was the spark that really ignited things. You then also get mass movements of people if we get desertification across the across the globe as well. So maybe that's the way to get through to someone like Boris Johnson is perhaps the security services put all those things in front of him. And Mm. that's been the conversion. Yeah, well, very awkward, that clip turning up for him. Uh, But speaking of awkward, what about AUKUS? Because uh, France, very, very cross about this. I think they'd like it to be AUKUS. Yeah, well, we spoke about this uh, last week, and, yeah. you know, and, and the French had just cancelled this big gala in, in Washington, D.C., and they, you know, were really, you know, pulling ambassadors, um, and then, like, the sort of real shade that they threw, being like, oh, we're not going to bother putting up British ambassador because we expect it from them, and all this <laughs> stuff um, was quite funny. Um, but, yeah, it is, you know, it is, it has created this rift. Uh, Scott Morrison, I think, still hasn't been able to speak to Emmanuel Macron in the week, he said, uh, when he was at Unger that he hadn't been able to speak to him. Um, But Joe Biden and Macron have now spoken. And Joe Biden, you know, in a sign of, you know, trying to fix things, Joe Biden is actually going to come to Europe next month and meet with Macron um, because the French were completely caught off guard by this. But there's a really good piece in the FT today that, you know, it was a bit of a failure of the French kind of uh, government and intelligence to not pick up the signs that stuff was going wrong, that Australia seemingly for months had been, you know, unhappy with the deal that had been signed a couple of years ago for these subs, that there was, you know, a plan B in formation, uh, and that really, you know, the strategic threat has changed. That, it, that At the end of the day, this is about the fact that a nuclear submarine can, a nuclear, you know, we have to distinguish it, it's not a nuclear attack submarine, it doesn't have nuclear weapons, it is nuclear propulsion, mm. can stay at sea indefinitely. The only the only factors that really keep it having to resurface is, you know, to replenish stocks and, and, for, the, and for the crew, um, versus a, a, a diesel electric submarine, which is what the French are building, which is, you know, doesn't have the same capabilities and is noisier in the water. So when it comes to the the, the pivot that we saw this with this whole thing, uh, it is about trying to kind of, and I think the same thing with, with Biden a month ago pulling out of Afghanistan, it is about focusing on China, focusing on the South China Sea, getting, you know, trying to build kind of international cooperation so that if enough nations stand up to China, they do start to really feel the pressure. But the way that this has gone, and been, gone about, you could say, well, really... 
France should have probably been brought into this, but they did have this commercial interest that they've reacted so negatively, uh, you know, because it is a massive contract that they have lost. Mm, Huge, absolutely huge. Now, a little bit later, I want us to come back and have a look at Germany, because, of course, very, very pivotal time Mm. in Germany's history. Uh, And we'll go to Germany now, in fact, because, uh, as we know, it's going to contest its federal election tomorrow. And one man who knows more about it than most, and those hoping to succeed Chancellor Angela Merkel, is Gabor Steingart. Now, he's a former publisher of Handelsblatt and more recently the founder of Media Pioneer. He's been travelling around Germany by boat ahead of the contest and he's been speaking to our news editor, Chris Chermak. Gabo, you have literally been cruising on your own ship this election campaign, talking to key German political voices, business voices as well. Just first tell us how you came up with this idea and the plan for this journey in the first place. We came up with a with a plan a couple of months ago, I would say one and a half year ago. We we built this ship, this first media ship in Europe. It's forty meter long, seven meters wide. It's twelve meters longer than the Mayflower, where where our grandmas and grandpas set over to the United States or founded the United States. So yeah, we 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 have built this media ship because we we don't find any space in in the inner circle of Berlin. So it was much cheaper to build a new ship. So it was much cheaper to build a new ship. And then you've also, you know, you didn't find space in Berlin, but you've also taken it out uh, to the, the rest of Germany. How has that gone? How has getting out of the capital been gaining a different vantage point and perspective? What, what did you learn about the country? We learned that that real people have have real problems, uh, and they are not part of the the political circus in in Berlin. They are not uh, living in this bubble. So we we crossed uh, Frankfurt. We we visited uh, Ludwigshafen, the biggest uh, chemical factory in the world. Yeah, we learned that people have real problems. They the real problems mean they care about inflation, for example. They care about their salary. They care about wealth production in Germany. What does it mean when we when we all meet our climate targets? What does it mean for the workers here in Wolfsburg, for the workers in Ludwigshafen, but also for, for Deutsche Bank and all this? Um, do we, do we um, disrupt our industrial model? That's the question. So a, a lot about industry uh, on your tour as well. You you also invited your guests onto the ship uh, along with a number of, of your own listeners. Who, who was your favorite ship guest, if I could ask, and who perhaps resonated most with the crowd, with what they had to say? I would say all these big animals in the in the corporate arena are interesting people. Yeah, They're well-educated, they're smart, they're very and fast uh, forward thinking so he's very radical in this i was a little bit disappointed about a cdu presidential candidate i mean laschet he wasn't bought as well in german you would say a little bit wishy-washy a flip-flopper um, not a strong politician uh, i like him he's very likable he's funny he is uh, also smart street smart but he's not a visionary character maybe he has no clue where to lead this country. Now he is struggling. His campaign looks a little bit crashed. 20,000 percent maybe is not enough to capture the, the chancellery, but we will see. That's a good note to ask you, uh, Gabo. You've, you've been a, a publisher, a political correspondent, bureau chief in, in Berlin, in Washington for, for so many election cycles. And this one 
is different, of course. It's the first one without Angela Merkel on a party ticket in, in 16 years. As you talked about there, Armin Laschet has underwhelmed so far as that potential replacement. I did want to just ask you uh, to look briefly back also at Angela Merkel herself. You've, you've interviewed her. You know her character. I wonder what your earliest memories are of, of covering Angela Merkel or seeing her in action. We first met in Bonn. I was a correspondent there for Der Spiegel. And uh, she was not important in, in the first uh, place because she was responsible for very small um, ministerium, secretary of something. I was also not important at Der Spiegel. I was part of a 25-member um, staff members in, in the political office in Bonn. And so I first met her for very small interviews. They, my boss asked me, don't make it too long, five, five questions, five answers. And uh, we first talked about pornography, about porn, uh, because she, she had to, had to shift uh, the law a little bit to make it a little bit stronger that, uh, that young people could not look uh, erotic films. So that was uh, my first topic with her. She was shy coming from the east part of Germany. Um, her, her daddy is a pastor from the Evangelic Church. Uh, I was a young um, a journalist, 20, 28, 29. So, but that was our first topic, and then we developed a kind of relation, and she became stronger. She, she was not this Angela Merkel, uh, what we all have seen later on on the world stage. She was really girlish. She was uh, more funny than later on. She was always a quick thinker. What big fun to 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 have discussions with her. Uh, I discussed, for example, several of my books. I I checked my thesis uh, before I started writing with her. And uh, once she she also um, gave me the feeling that my book idea will not work. And uh, so I decided not to write it. Uh, and that uh, conversation one and a half hour at that time, I remember very well. So she is a smart lady. What has your feeling been of the mood in Germany then in the run-up to this election? You, you talked about Angela Merkel there and your history with her. She's been such a stabilizing force over the years. Are the people of Germany content, would you say? Are they worried about this post-pandemic future and also this future without, you know, Mutti steering the ship? No, I, I think Muti's time is over right now. People are thick and tired with politicians who don't deliver. Even Angela Merkel has not delivered on several subjects, uh, for example, uh, science or education. But also uh, climate change uh, was on her lips, but not really uh, on, on her agenda. So I think people are now eager for some sort of change. I, I would say the German way of change, not too much, not too fast, not too radical. And please don't hurt my foregarden and my car and my carport and and all these things and don't touch the welfare state but b below this people are ready for some some kind of change because they see that our country is is not stable anymore uh, we we see germany in a relative decline um, uh, maybe not every worker sees and feels this situation, but the elite and the middle class definitely sees that Germany is in a relative decline and that we that we have to to accomplish something on on several topics in several areas of of politics, and that's uh, an agenda for a new chancellor. 
And finally, Gabo, as an agenda for a new chancellor, Germany's role in the world has not really been discussed that much on the campaign trail among the candidates. Uh, do you expect continuity on that front or might there be some surprises for world leaders out there? I think for the world leaders, there are no surprises because the, all the politicians, and I know them all, which are now on the ballot, uh, they are very stable and uh, and uh, yeah, well, how to say, friedfertig, peaceful characters. Uh, there is no no hawkish politician in Germany right now. They are all in the middle of the of the spectrum: the liberals, the social democrats, and also the greens. The greens um, don't don't mix them up with the greens ten, fifteen years ago. This new green party is very very centered in the middle of our political landscape, they will not do crazy things. They are committed to NATO, for example. They are committed to our military, for example. So don't expect uh, that they will, will run crazy. Germany is and will be a center, uh, country centered in the middle of the political spectrum worldwide. And that was Gabor Steingart in conversation with Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak. And of course, uh, Germany without Merkel is something that's dominating many of the newspapers today. Uh, Vincent McAvenny is still with me. Vinny, what have you what, what have you found that's of particular interest about the uh, federal election and the and, and Mutti waving goodbye to Mutti? Yeah, I mean, it is remarkable that she's finally going. I mean, from perspective here in the UK, we've had five prime ministers in the time that she has been in office. I mean, having that level of stability at the heart of Europe is something that I think we're going to miss and we're not going to know how helpful it was until she is really gone. And she's someone who really has, you know, a a huge international profile. I think a real standout moment for me was the day after... um, Donald Trump's election in 2016, I happened to be doing the pool interview with Theresa May. So the pool is where you go in and you do a clip that then goes to all the broadcasters. And it was about the election. And I could I walked into Downing Street, there was high nerves amongst the staff. Uh, and Theresa May um, w- was someone who was she was quite funny actually she she David Cameron would walk in do it walk out Theresa May would be where do you want me to stand and and you'd have a little chat with her beforehand and she'd talk and I said oh was it a late night and she said I'm watching the results come in uh, and they had had a shock that it wasn't Hillary Clinton that's what she thought she was doing saying you know she'd be wake up and saying fellow female leader across the Atlantic and it was Donald Trump and it was very evident that she had very carefully sculpted what she was going to say but there was real concern behind the eyes whereas I remember watching Angela Merkel just come out onto the stage and deliver a speech and made it very clear from the offset that she was going to be a buffer to what she knew was coming with Trump, uh, what German's history had showed about this kind of enigmatic leader who promises all sorts. And then she did for four years stand up to him, protect international order. That photo, I think, will really remain long uh, of her kind of standing over Donald Trump, uh, facing him down at a a G7. Uh, And that kind of leadership at the heart of Europe, we will see whether, you know, Emmanuel Macron can match it. But he is sometimes a little, as we've seen the last week, he is a little bit too hot, a little bit too flash sometimes. Whereas, you know, Mutti, when you look back, it was all about that 
absolute steady, calm hand and letting events play out uh, and acting when she had to. And I think that's something that uh, we're going to miss. Mm. Uh, it's funny you mentioned photograph of her that, that, at that time because there's another brilliant one I which just it. came out yesterday. Yeah, and so onto the uh, election that's, that's happening. There's a brilliant photograph. She went to a bird sanctuary and sometimes you do wonder why, why politicians get sent to things, but it is probably just for these photos. So she's covered in parrots, uh, they're feeding and in one photo she She's giving her kind of usual kind of, you know, smile to the camera. And in another, something's happened and she's just absolutely roaring with laughter or pain. It's not clear <laughs> if one of the birds maybe pecked her because there's one on her head. Um, but it is absolutely brilliant. I feel like that's a good last image of her in power. But yeah, the election is uh, taking place uh, and the polls are tightening. It really is unclear at the moment who or what combination of parties is going to end up. But there is uh, an interesting piece there in the New York Times there about how the far right, the AFD movement, has kind of stalled, is kind of falling away again on a kind of a number of grounds. One is that there have been a number of attacks uh, against Muslim communities, against Jewish communities in Germany over the past couple of years, and that is being blamed on the record and the rhetoric of the AFD, and there's a rejection of that in Germany. You know, they had really gained after Muti let in around a million Syrian refugees back in 2016. That's when they really kind of rose up the ranks, but there has been a rejection of that. And I think the other one is interesting and it's something I remember speaking something I remember speaking to Nick Clegg with a couple of years ago when he was still here in, in Britain and we were talking about far-right parties and the BNP was still kind of, you know, it was early, early 2010s. The BNP, which was the British National Party, a far-right uh, party, was kind of uh, gaining ground and, and winning council seats and, and uh, winning local government places. Uh, and Nick Clegg just said, I'm not that concerned because, do you know what? when their rhetoric meets the road, these people are absolutely useless in office mm. uh, and people see through them and an election cycle later, they're gone. And he and he was right about that, both with the BNP and then subsequently with UKIP as well, which is a watered down version of, of the BNP effectively. Um, and, you know, that's what we've seen in this coverage saying with the AFD is that, you know, the fact that they're, you know, denying things like um, the climate crisis, particularly in Germany, where the, where the Greens have, have, have made such huge grounds compared to many countries across Europe, that uh, that kind of thing no longer washes with voters and they see through these people's rhetoric that they're actually they're, they're just not that competent. Yeah, I, I love that phrase, when the rhetoric meets the road. I'd like to talk about when the articulated lorries meet the yes. road or, in fact, when they don't, because it's a when huge crisis, don't. except it's not. We're being told there is no fuel crisis, nothing to see here, move on. But the real crisis is, of course, the shortage of lorry drivers. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, for anyone listening in the UK, you don't have to grab the jerry cans and rush out. There is enough supply. There are 8,500 fuel stations around the UK. Only 1% are currently being closed, and those are kind of at the, at the extremities of the country. And that is because there is this driver crisis. So I spent yesterday, actually, with a transport logistics company, and I went out in one of the big, you know, 18-wheeler um, tra- articulated lorries. Um, I could... I'm... I'm a, a decent driver. I've, you know, driven last year was an election, I drove a giant, you know, Cadillac Escalade all over the place. I don't mind driving a big car. And I've driven a minivan before when I worked uh, at a summer camp in America. But driving something with the, where it's articulated, where it's, the, you know, the, the physics and getting it right, I just couldn't do it. It was in, in so high up as well. Um, 
so uh, yesterday I was talking to a driver about this because we have this shortage in the UK and we are starting to see, uh, you know, the emptying of supermarket shelves. Uh, and then w- this panic has been triggered because it's, you know, there, there's been queues starting to form at petrol stations and that is now causing a problem. But it all comes down to this problem of drivers. You've got a couple of factors at play. There is Brexit and the loss of drivers coming from Europe, but there's also... Um, the fact that the UK changed the, the tax system slightly with this thing called IR35, the way that people could get paid. Um, and I was spent talking to this driver yesterday. He's driven for 11 years. He doesn't. He loves driving. Uh, and he says he likes driving on the continent, but he just doesn't do much of it in the last couple of years because he says it's just the conditions. People no longer want to sleep five nights a week in their truck in a lay-by in the UK, peeing in a bush, you know, not having proper meals, not being able to kind of see family and friends. He says the facilities in the rest of Europe are much better and you don't actually have to pay for them. If you do get into a services, which does get quite full, he says, in the UK, um, you're having to pay for it and you're getting really, really nothing. You also have um, organised crime gangs who attack the lorries as well and steal the stuff Uh, and you know the government's solution is to try and boost the pay and we have seen supermarkets and other companies trying to do that to kind of get new people in Um, but it really he says is all down to the conditions and the way that the system is set up and it is an incredibly hard lifestyle because you know he was saying that you know we don't just do the driving we have to do the loading the unloading physically itself and you think this is a real structural problem that's been brewing for a long time but unless they do something to you know it seems to sort out the conditions to sort out the services available, uh, we're going to be in this problem for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely no quality of life for, for lorry drivers here in Britain. Let's talk about quality of life, though, because, of course, our conference is going on in Athens, our quality of life conference. And Monocle's editorial t- uh, director, Tyler Brule, was joined on stage by the editor of the Sunday Times, Emma Tucker, to discuss the future of the media. It's fantastic having Emma Taka here because uh, she once had um, maybe the not-so-fun task of being my editor in a former life at a, a pinkish newspaper I once did. upon a time. It was an interesting job. He always filed late, literally every week. He always had a good excuse on a plane, lost somewhere. But the interesting thing is I, I commissioned him a couple of weeks ago thinking maybe things had changed. Turns out they haven't. Even when you're grounded and there's no, no flights, you still can't <laughs> file on time. We have tons to, uh, to really go through because it's just such an extraordinary time. But I want to just rewind them a little bit. You get this gig, the interview process. Uh, here you land uh, at the Sunday Times uh, to the top chair. Maybe just tell everyone, because of course, you know, some people are not getting either the digital edition or the print edition. What newspaper did you inherit? Maybe just take us back to that moment. I th- well, this, the Sunday Times occupies a very special position in sort of British media landscape and also in the, the culture of Sundays in Britain. So it's a, it's a very big beast. It's got this tremendous reputation. Uh, it used to have a slogan that was the Sunday Times is the Sunday Papers and it still very much thinks of itself in that way. So I was following in the footsteps of some very big names, former editors, Harold Evans, Andrew Neil, and I think the newspaper establishment feels very proprietorial towards the Sunday Times. It's famous not just in the UK, but abroad for having broken some really big stories. Uh, the FIFA files was a Sunday Times exclusive. Back in the day, they broke the story of the thalidomide scandal. So it's got this tremendous reputation. And when I took it on in, with some trepidation, <laughs> I basically confronted a 
paper that was very living off this reputation, but was almost entirely print-focused. And I think, to some extent, its reputation had allowed it to get away with that. So I quickly surmised that um, we needed to switch that focus, because for all that people still enjoy a Sunday print newspaper, um, I think you only need to look around you to see that that's not where the future lies. So you're talking about a transformation. Obviously, it existed um, as digital. But, but what did you want to do? Because there is something interesting. If you're a subscriber to, let's say, the overall Times brand as well, it's not also in this ticker world as well. There, it really sort of chooses its moments. It's not just breaking news willy-nilly. So, you know, and I think that's fascinating because somehow it has that presence of print without the sort of weird, you know, addictive nature where we know many news sites, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of dormant for a long time. They're just trying to push a lot of crap out there the whole time. So how much was that part of a, of a strategy also from a woman who, of course, really started in print, has inky fingers some days? Tyler, if only you knew what you had, what, the, the, this is the answer I could give to that question, because you've really hit on a philosophical challenge that is affecting all titles, but also internally for us. So when we relaunched our digital edition, originally we put up, we were one of the first newspapers to put up a paywall. And um, at, w when we did that, we realized we had to uh, adapt the product. We had to give people something that they were willing to pay for, given that there was a lot else out there that was free. And when we spoke to readers, what we discovered was what you just described. They don't want to be overwhelmed by endless small updates to stories. Not least because, as I said before, you can get that for free anywhere. So we came up with this idea of digital editions. So we'd have the morning edition, a midday update, and then a five o'clock update. And uh, our readers quickly got used to this. You could watch the traffic trends and you could see that they would come in and read stories in a rather like we, I guess we used to read newspapers. But at the moment, there's a, there's a bit of a, a tussle going on internally. <laughs> I can <laughs> which, imagine yeah, some. <laughs> which, I needn't go into uh, necessarily about whether we should be doing more of the breaking news because newspaper, uh, journalists hate the idea of being last. And journalists think, that they make the big mistake of thinking that readers are like them, and they're not. Readers, by and large, are like, you know, they're people with other things to do in their lives. They're not glued to the news the whole time. It's a slightly different challenge for me, because obviously on a Sunday, there's not so much news. We've had quite a lot recently. A lot of people have died on Saturdays, which makes for interesting, interesting times. But um, by and large, it's not the same challenge. So we can focus much more on high-quality, distinctive, exclusive stories. And that was Emma Tucker, who is the editor of the Sunday Times, in conversation with Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, at our Quality of Life conference in Athens. And, of course, a former editor of the Sunday Times, as Emma mentioned, is Andrew Neal. Uh, Vincent McCavney is still with me. Vince, uh, Andrew Neal's been much in the news this week after his ill-starred venture, GB News, looks close to collapse. Yeah, speaking of quality, we'll go to the polar opposite, GB News. Um, Andrew Neil has left in a spectacular fashion and has gone out the door absolutely lambasting the channel uh, but he's also taking it incredibly personal he's done this big interview uh, with the mail here today uh, and you know the channel has had a pretty you know tricky times just 
effectively staying on air, but also there is no audience. At multiple points, it is, in the ratings, getting effective zero. Uh, people are not watching. There is not this big market that they thought there was. Uh, and, you know, Andrew Neil gives a couple of really interesting insights to behind the scenes, you know, talking about uh, the kind of technical setup wasn't right, the kind of people that he was having to, uh, to, to deal with behind the scenes who are kind of these sort of quite uh, incredibly wealthy kind of hedge fund types, Brexit types, um, that were wanting effective a Fox News and he was trying, he says, to pull it another way. Uh, but, you know, talking about, you know, we as broadcasters know how he, how horrible this must be. He had an hour-long show planned with guests all down the line and external communications fell away and he was just told to present for an hour. Um, I mean, that is every broadcaster's worst nightmare. I literally don't know what I'd talk about if I had to, you on know, on my own. Yeah. Hilarious. Oh, God. Um, but yeah, he is, you know, and he's, he's really, you know, it seems emotional and, and, and upset in this piece. Uh, and in the last, you know, he, he kind of said he did two only did two weeks of his show then he went to France uh, and then there was lots of rumours he wasn't coming back he denied that uh, and then he said he did he had quit but he was going to still make some guest appearances because of contractual it seems because of contractual issues on Farage's show he did one and then he went on question time and, and blew the whole channel away and you know talked about how sort of terrible it was but he's trying to really exact a lot of sympathy from people in this interview today and it's a bit like you know you did this yourself. You had a fantastic position at the BBC. You're a well-respected broadcaster. Um, you know, you are a, a rigorous interviewer, but you did this to yourself. So, what? you know, it, after all that's gone on in the last 18 months, pandemic and the hardship that people are facing, I don't think many people are going to feel much sympathy for multimillionaire Andrew Neil after, you know, kind of creating something that has, you know, well, it seems like I don't think it will last much longer on air, but did kind of go out of its way to cause more problems in an already divided country. Yeah, absolutely. It does seem incredible. And But there are sort of talk, talks about, uh, I mean, uh, the, 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 we're just listening to Emma Tucker, the Times and the Sunday Times launching a television channel. Yeah, this is really and He may go on to that, of course. Yeah, he could go on to that. Um, it, there's been such mixed reports on this. It's a bit of a hokey-cokey story where... There was talk a couple of, at the beginning of the year that um, Rupert Murdoch wanted to launch something else as well, a kind of news channel. Uh, and then GB News got out first and then that channel kind of seemed to go away. It shows that I think effectively, I mean, you and I know this, the cost of news behind the scenes is very expensive to do news properly. And if you're talking about rolling news in the UK, you know, we have two rolling news channels, the BBC, which is obviously publicly funded. Um, and then you've got Sky, which... You know, Sky News doesn't exist because of the advertising on Sky News. It exists because of the whole of Sky broadcaster bringing in revenue. And in many years, Sky News has not actually turned a profit. It is not a profitable venture. You don't make a rolling news channel to make a lot of money. And having what GB News has, which is just a news channel without any other form of support uh, behind it, it just will be getting the money from the adverts. That It's a recipe for disaster, as, as they've got, you know, as I said, uh, oftentimes no viewers. So that means advertisers are going to start pulling their adverts. They won't want to pay. It will collapse. So it's been interesting. So Rupert Murdoch obviously has stepped back, bided his time, uh, and is now launching something. So the only clear things we know is it's going to be called News Talk TV, which is slightly surprising because the, the, the News UK operation that Rupert Murdoch owns has amazing titles like The Times and The Sunday Times. It has The Sun as well and The Sun on Sunday, newspaper-wise. And then it has Times Radio and it has News Talk Radio, which is kind of like a less good version of LBC, effectively. Mm. It is kind of right-wing uh, talk radio often. Um, and so this 
this new channel is going to be called uh, News Talk TV. It's very strange when you've got these big brands like The Times, and they already have spun off Times Radio, that you're, that you're basing it around the News Talk brand, which is curious. Um, but they are, it seems, you know, they've paid big money to get Piers Morgan, the former Good Morning Britain presenter, on board. Uh, and he's got a multinational deal with them where he's going to do stuff for Fox News in the US, Sky News in Australia, this new TV channel here. He's going to do a column for The Sun. He's going to do books. It's going to be Piers Morgan. I think it's... I feel like it's effectively going to be Piers Morgan's channel that they're going to, you know, he's going to be on it non-stop. So it will be interesting to see whether they, you know, have the money to bring in Andrew Neil as well and whether it's worth it. And also it has to be said with Andrew Neil, you know, I've worked at the BBC, I've worked in teams that uh, on shows that Andrew Neil's done. You, you know, there was a slight disrespect, I think, to other broadcasters when GB News launched uh, that to do the kind of really rigorous, you know, interviews that Andrew Neil did required a whole team of very competent, you know, not ideologue broadcasters, broadcasters, uh, sorry, producers behind the scenes who could take any political figure, take apart whatever was going on in their policies, good and bad, uh, and then prep him properly for those interviews. It wasn't all down to him, as good an interview as he is in the moment. There's so much work done behind the scenes, and obviously GB News didn't invest in that, and if they want someone like Andrew Neil at, you know, this News Talk TV, they will have to give him the kind of team that supports that. But we'll see what happens, whether or not they do go ahead with this channel or not. Absolutely. Vincent McAvinney, thank you very much indeed. And just before we go, I just wanted to highlight a couple of events going on in in London this weekend, if you're in the capital, uh, Netflix and the Evening Standard are having their Stories Festival. That's at the Picture House Central on Shaftesbury Avenue. Lots of really great events there. I'll be speaking to the creator of Unorthodox and also the person that runs the show, uh, Lupin, as well as the man that brought us Money Heist. Uh, I'll be doing that on Sunday. Also happening this weekend is the Penn Centenary events at the South Bank. Lots of fascinating shows going on there. I went to see uh, Chimamanda uh, Ngozi Adichie there last night and uh, she'll be back alongside some other fantastic speakers. So if you're in London, lots of wonderful cultural things to do at both the, the South Bank and at the Picture House Central. Uh, you've been listening to Monocle on Saturday thanks to our studio manager Nora Hall and our producer Rhys James. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>